Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to Pride Connection and happy Pride Month. I am your guest host, Chris Snyder, and tonight I have a really, really special treat for you guys. Those of you who are on the BPI email list have certainly heard of the New York Times and USA Today bestselling and Lambda Literary Award winning author T.J. Klune. We've had some great message threads about The House in the Cerulean Sea, and we may have touched on The Extraordinaries also. Both of those books are available through the NLS on Bard, and those two books, plus all of TJ's other books, are available on Audible and in the Kindle store. He's got some really amazing narrators, including one of my absolute favorites, Michael Leslie, and just a swath of other great narrators. And TJ is so talented, he makes you laugh, he makes you cry, he makes you feel all the emotions, he's just spectacular. Being queer himself, TJ believes it's important, now more than ever, to have positive, accurate queer representation in stories. I have read all of his books, and I can say, from my perspective, he has done an absolutely fantastic job of that. So without further ado, here is my interview with TJ Clune. I am joined today by amazing author TJ Clune. TJ, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. I'm very happy to be here. Tell us a little more about yourself and how you came to start writing. Well, when I was a kid, I grew up in very poor, very rural Oregon, and I didn't have a lot of support that had a lot to do with the the place where I was growing up. When you're a loudmouth, effeminate kid with ADHD, you don't tend to do very well in rural type areas. And I always felt separated from from others because of that. I I always felt like there was this otherness to me that didn't allow me to relate very well to people my own age. And so I spent a lot of time at the Douglas County Library in Roseburg, Oregon, and that place was my savior. I read far above my reading level. I didn't understand half the stuff I read, but I read everything I could get my hands on, fiction, nonfiction, all of it. And I when I was probably like six or seven, I started carrying this notebook around with me where I would fill it with stories I'd make up, basically a form of fan fiction because I was inserting myself into a video game that I was playing when I was a kid. And it just grew from there because the writing was the the only thing that made me feel accepted. It was the only place I really felt safe was when I was writing. And I, I didn't have a lot of support coming from that. And it wasn't actually until seventh grade when I had two amazing teachers, Mrs. Benson, Mrs. Pfeiffer, who for the first time in my life told me that I was a good writer, that I was talented, that I needed to do something with it. And that one day they would see 
my name on a book in a bookstore. And that kind of validation when you've never really had that before is absolutely life-changing. And I've never, ever forgotten them. They've long since passed, but it's the power of teachers. When you're a queer kid who doesn't really have any friends and, and you're just the weird one, all it takes is a, a teacher like Mrs. Betts and Mrs. Pfeiffer to alter the course of your life. And they did that for me and I'm eternally grateful for that. And it's because of them that as I got older, I started writing more and more and more until one day I decided to write a book. And that first book was published back in 2011. That was Bear Otter and the Kid? Yeah, correct. And that was That's with- such a good book. Oh, thank you. I and the it, whole it, series. It's crazy to think that it'll be 10 years this August since that first book came out. And if you had told me back then that I'd be where I am now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed you. Because before that first book came out, all I told myself was that if one person read it and liked it, then I would have done my job. And I am so humbled to be where I'm at today because it's not something you ever suspect. You can wish for it and you can dream about it and you can hope for it. But frankly, it's, it's hard being an author and it's hard getting noticed and it's hard getting an audience to read your books. But I just kept at it and I'm just grateful for where I am today. All of your books have these wonderful portrayals of LGBT characters and it's just such a joy to read them. And, you know, you get some angst in some of them, of course. There's a lot mm -hmm. of the um, Green Creek series comes immediately to mind when I say angst. But, <laughs> um, but it's so nice to have the queer part of it as mostly not a source of the angst as it is the plot developments. You know, it's such a switch. It's such a nice change. Right. And let's be clear. My, my first book, especially Bear Otter the Kid, I did do that. I was always under this impression, and I, I can't even explain why, that I always thought that when you're writing queer characters, you need to start with a coming out story and that there needed to be angst involved in the coming out process. Mm -hmm. And that's what people wanted to read. And I'm glad that book exists. I'm glad Bear Otter the Kid exists. It's imperfect. It's a first novel. So, you know, I've, I've grown quite a bit since then. But the older I've gotten, the less I'm interested in that process, the coming out process, because life doesn't end <laughs> when you come out. It's just the beginning yeah. of something else entirely. And, and what I don't think a lot of people realize is that queer people have to come out to anyone new they meet for the rest of their lives. It's not a one time done and it's over and, and everybody knows any potential new person you bring into your life is somebody you might have to come out to. Yeah, and I'm always... Ongoing. Right. And I'm always interested in, in what it looks like after coming out. And I know that there are many, many great authors out there, greater than I, who've done some really amazing coming out stories. But I'm always interested now as I'm getting older about what comes next after that. And why does it always have to be so hard? Why can't it be easy? Why can't we have a group of characters where their queerness, it's part of them, but it isn't their defining feature, the defining arc of the story. It's just part of them and nobody really gives a crap about it. Yeah, I would also say, though, that time has changed the nature of coming out and the nature of this kind of story. And I think when Bear Otter and the Kid came out, I think we still needed that. And Yeah, so, and I, I can see that. It, it, you know, you're right. It, it, it's, it's so weird to say, but it has been a decade. It has been a decade, and so many things have changed. Absolutely. And I do think we need that. And I still think we need stories about coming out. But I also think we need stories about queer people who are queer and that's part of their lives and they can do whatever they want with it. There are so many types of stories about queer people that we shouldn't just focus on one. Indeed. 
many blind readers, and full disclosure to you, I'm totally blind, so mm-hmm. I, I've been reading your books. Initially, I found Bear Otter and the Kid on Audible, and then I got hungry for the rest of them. And so if they weren't yet on Audible, I started doing the Kindle thing and yeah. reading them with synthetic speech over the Kindle. But many blind readers found you thanks to The House in the Cerulean Sea, which is now available on the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped and Dyslexic. So that is where they came to you. I would ask you, what is your favorite part of that book? And what would you like people to take away from it? So first and foremost, it just goes to show what a publisher does. Because The House in the Cerulean Sea was my first book with my new publisher. All my prior novels were with a former publisher, an indie publisher that collapsed. And so I got the rights back to all my books and republished them on my own. But Tor, who published The House in the Cerulean Sea, has a vast amount of resources that weren't available to somebody on the indie scene necessarily. Mm -hmm. So for the fact that they were able to add it to a national service for blind readers and and able to get that in there, it's just yet another thing of why I'm so happy that I was able to sign up with Tor. And The House in the Cerulean Sea, I think my favorite part of that book is always going to be Chauncey, just because he (laughs) is my favorite character He doesn't necessarily have the biggest arc. He's not the smartest character. He's not the funniest. Well, to me, he is. But yeah, there's just something so innocent about him and his childlike desires. In this case, he wants to be a bellhop. He wants to help people at a hotel. And there's just something so wildly, wonderfully innocent about that, that that's his singular focus. Because that's how I was as a kid. When I was a kid, my focus was that I wanted to be an archaeologist, just like Indiana Jones, because I had watched those movies over and over and over again. And then I watched the movie Alien, which I was probably way too young to watch, (laughs) but that changed my mind. And I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist astronaut. And I was going to be the world's first archaeologist astronaut. I was going to go to different places outside of this earth and find evidence of alien civilizations. And I was so focused on that. It was just this desperate thing. And I, I think that's the way it is for kids. We, I won't speak for every kid out there, but I know for me as a kid, I hyper-focused on something that brought me joy, something that made me inquisitive. And I think that's the same for Chauncey and the fact that he wants to be a bellhop and you know that that might be an issue given how he looks because he's a green blob with tentacles. It just, it, it really sunk in the message that, that he didn't care what he looked like. He didn't care about any of that. He just wanted to help people. And I, I, I just love him dearly because of that. And what I hope people walk away from this book after they close the final page is that we are so much better than all the wrong stuff that we hear about, that we're constantly fed a diet of outrage. We are so much better than that. And that there is still good in the world, that there is still hope and that we need to work together to lift up the voices that are being overshadowed and being overrun. And we need to remember too, that when we're talking on their behalf, that sometimes we need to shut up and listen so we don't drown out their voices. And above all, I just think that the message of hope and kindness is something that resonates, unfortunately, now more than ever, because it it seems like even if we've seen, say, a change administration in the United States, there's still so much hatred out there in this Mm -hmm. country. And it's mind boggling that we seem to be repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so I wanted to put a book out there that was just about hope and about kindness. And I hope that's what people walked away from it remembering. Everybody in this book has their own unique voice. And 
historically, I would say through all of the books that I've read of yours, and I think I've read them all, one of the very best features of them is the dialogue. How do you go about developing those unique voices for people? I write how people talk. I think that's something that, that a lot of people don't realize how hard that is. Because when we talk, when we have personal conversations with each other, the language isn't formal. And I think that sometimes writers get lost in the idea of formal language and trying to elevate their language. And that's all well and good. If it works for you, that's totally fine. But for me, a goal of mine has always been to write how people actually talk. And no matter the setting of the book, if it's a contemporary book for something fantastical, I always want the dialogue to be realistic, to be relatable, because if that happens, that can draw the reader in and make them feel like they're listening to old friends talking. So for me, and again, this doesn't work for everyone, so take this with a grain of salt, but what I tend to do is that when I finish a book, I will go back over and I will read the dialogue parts out loud to see if it sounds like natural speech, to see if it sounds like something this character, if they were a real person, would they actually sound the way I've written it? And many times I'll find myself making corrections. It doesn't even need to be a big correction. It could just be a minor correction, switching a word here or there, deleting a specific word because it doesn't quite fit with the, the flow of how I'm speaking. But it helps me to speak dialogue out loud because I need to see if it feels natural on my tongue or not. And that's something that I've done for a long time, and, and it's something that works for me specifically. Well, it certainly works in the books. And speaking as somebody who narrates both audio description and now audiobooks for pay, I got to say, I appreciate that. And I wish more authors would follow your lead. Because <laughs> sometimes <laughs> they, put, they put stuff in front of me that is just like, well, these are great words, but I don't know how the heck I'm going to get that out. Yeah, I think I think a lot of times, and you know, this is not me saying I'm better than any other author of the world because that's ridiculous, but I think a lot of times some authors are so focused on plot that they forget that characters matter more. At least to me, as you probably know, I tend to write more character-focused books yes. versus, say, plot-driven. And that's just something that I love because to me, characters are the book. They are the world. Yes, things can happen around them or to them or because of them but I'm always interested in the why of it. Why are these characters acting this certain way? What are their motivations? What are they doing? And I want them to feel as real as possible. I know it's fiction. I know they're not real, but they're real to me. And I want that to read through to the reader on the page that you know this is a book, you know this story isn't real, but it could be because of how these characters sound. Speaking of characters, indeed, the romance between Arthur and Linus is, is understated. Was that a deliberate choice or did that just sort of naturally evolve that way? I, I think it was probably a combination of both because I knew going in, I didn't want that to be the main focus, but I wanted it to just be another side of love because this house in the Cerulean Sea is a love story overall, but it's not just a love story between Arthur and Linus. It's a love story between Arthur and the children, Zoe and the children, Zoe and Arthur and Linus with all of them. It's about falling in love with a group of people as opposed to just one person. Yes, there is the romance with Arthur. And yes, it is a slow burn that mostly happens in the background. You can see the connections that they have and you can see the moment when the things start to twist for them. But that wasn't going to be the major focus at all because I, I had so many other things I wanted to say, but I wanted to give it equal weight to the other kinds of love, whether it be paternal, whether it be familial, whether it be friendship, because those loves are just as important. 
And I wanted to show that Linus needed all that kind of love, not just one, because I think that that might have rang a little false if all of a sudden, just because of Arthur, he was on the path to becoming a better person. That kind of motivation didn't sit right with me. So I needed him to fall in love with all of these people as opposed to just one. Well, he sure needed it. You did a great job in laying out how drab his life was before he was sent to the island, you know? Yeah, and I, I, I pulled on my own personal experience because I was a cubicle drone for 10 years at an insurance company. So I know what that life is like and I know how soul-sucking it can be. And I, I wanted to take what I felt like when I was in that role. And obviously there's a sense of, of hyper-realness about it, but it still was pretty true to <laughs> what life was like in that kind of work. And you felt like a number, you felt like a person in black and white without any color in you. And it just felt like, <laughs> for me, it felt like I was dying, like my soul was being snuffed out. And so when I made the monumentally scary decision to quit that to do writing full-time it was at once the scariest and the best decision I'd ever made for myself and five years later I'm still going good I think that kind of what is what I pulled into the book for Linus as he's a social worker for the department in charge of magical youth and it's this big grand scary thing where rules must be followed and you can't speak out of turn or else you'll get in trouble and that part of Linus was the piece of me that I put into the book. Mm. So going back a little bit to dialogue and the naturalness of dialogue, do you choose the narrators of your books or does the publisher? I have to say, you've always picked very good ones. Michael Leslie, of course, is phenomenal. And thanks to your books has become my favorite male narrator. But you had Daniel Henning on House in the Cerulean Sea, the inimitable Kurt Graves on, on Green Creek and some others. So do you pick those or do you have the publisher do it? or? or so it when I first got started, I didn't pick the narrators because I didn't know that that was a choice that I had. I thought the publisher did that. So my first couple of books were not chosen by me. It wasn't until the Tell Me It's Real series that I made my own decision. I kind of put my foot down because not that the previous narrators were bad, but I wanted to have input. This is my book. These were my words. Somebody was going to be reading that. And I wanted to make sure that it was the right fit. So that's when I found Michael Leslie. And I don't know that I've ever had anybody that comedically talented. I don't know if I know anybody that, that comedically talented because he is just in a league of his own when it comes to comedy. So I stuck with him because I was so happy with his work ethic, with his sense of humor, with what he could do with my books. I stuck with him through the Tell Me It's Real series. I had brought him on for my Tales of Verania series. And then when I got called up to the big leagues, when I signed with Tor and Tortine, I brought him up to do my Extraordinary series. And when I was writing the Extraordinary series, my YA about queer superheroes, I already had him in mind. And I kind of went to Tor Teen and said, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And I'd like to see if we can bring Michael on. And literally within a day, he was brought on, which was just a relief that I had a familiar face in this weird new world of big five publishers that I'd never been in before. And then you have Kurt, who his very first book that he ever did in terms of audio was Wolf Song, the first book in the Green Creek wow. series. That was his first book he ever recorded. Wow. And then he did the remaining four books of that. He did Murmuration. 
And oh, that was a I've, fantastic book. I, yeah. Oh, thank I, you. Murmuration, <laughs> I was just blown away. It was insane. Anybody who hasn't read Murmuration needs to read it now. It is Thanks. I, I, I adore that book. That was my, because I tend to not want to write in the same genre over and over and over again. And Murmuration was my ode to the Twilight Zone and my love of late 80s, early 90s Stephen King novels. Oh, but you hit the mark. <laughs> Thanks. I, I love that book. So Kurt is actually getting called up to the big leagues with me too. He'll be narrating my next novel that comes out in September, Under the Whispering Door. So when I came up to tour though, because with House in the Cerulean Sea, I didn't know if I could have any say. So when the audio production came to me and said, so we have this narrator that we think would be a perfect fit. His name is Daniel Henning. And here's his bona fides and here's what we think we can do. And we want you to listen to him. And the first time I listened to a copy of what he'd done in terms of an audition, there was nobody else. I didn't even need to hear any other auditions. I knew it was going to be him. His narration, I don't know that I could have gotten as lucky as I did to get him because he made the book better than it had any right to be. He is these characters. And he was nominated for an, an Audi Award, which is the highest mm -hmm. awards that they give out to audio narrators for his work on The House in the Cerulean Sea. And I am so, so grateful of his time and care and attention and obvious love for these characters that the work that he did in The House in the Cerulean Sea is just, it blew away all my expectations. I've, I'm, I've been very, very lucky when it comes to the audio narrators that I work with. They're just phenomenal people. Are there more stories, do you think, to tell in the universe of The House in the Cerulean Sea? I do. I'm going to be very careful with what I say next so I don't get in trouble with my publisher, but I do think there are more stories. I don't quite know what that looks like yet. I never, ever want to write a sequel to cash in on some kind of success. That's not who I am as a writer. The only way that I will write a sequel is if I find a story that is equal or better than the first. I've read sequels before to beloved books that were not great, and they kind of put a sour taste in my mouth when it came to the first book, knowing that it continued on. Even though I didn't have to read it, I knew that the story continued on. So I'm taking my time with the idea of writing more in that until I can be properly sure that I have a story that's worth continuing. There are so, so many things that I know I could do, but I need to wait until I cultivate it into something that is recognizably a story about these characters that's worth telling. That makes sense. And, and I'm grateful for that because I too have read sequels that did not measure up. Yeah. And I, I worry about that. You know, obviously I love writing sequels because I've written quite a few, but each time I do, I worry the book is just not going to be as good as the first one's one. The, the, the people that love that first book, are they going to read the next one and be like, eh, that's not as good. And you know, long ago, I divorced myself from what readers think of the books just because a reader has a right to have any opinion they want on any book they read. That's just how it is. And I support that wholeheartedly. But I do want to protect my characters and I'm never the type of person that just wants to cash in on success because that would feel like selling out and that's not who I am as a person and that's what I don't want my writing to be. I want my writing to remain genuine and I want my writing to remain something that I can be proud of versus an easy cast grab. This reader has enjoyed all your sequels. Um, oh, okay. so, <laughs> well, thank you. For what it's worth. Um, 
Speaking of ideas and coming up with ideas, a lot of people have certain places in their homes or their lives uh, where they do their best thinking. What is your favorite place to come up with new ideas? Do you have one? I do. My dog, his name is Hendrix, and he's 80 pounds of very, very active dog. And so we tend to do about five miles every day. And on the weekends, Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays, we may do up to 25 miles altogether. And when I'm walking my dog, I am listening to music and I am thinking about book stuff for the most part. And that's where I get my best thinking done. That's where I work on plot issues. That's where I work on storylines. And I have this notepad function on my phone. It's kind of a a speak to text where I'll come up with something that I think needs to be jotted down or saved. And I learned very quickly that I'm not the type of person that will remember (laughs) everything I think of. So if I come up with something that I need to remember, that I want to include, whatever it is, I will pull out my phone. I will speak into it on this function and it automatically saves it and sends it to my email, a specific email that I have for all of these. And I have thousands of (laughs) these messages that I've sent to myself over the past few years. When I'm walking, when I'm listening to my music, it is my safe space. It's where I'm clearing my head. It's where I'm outside. I'm looking at the sun. I'm looking at the sky and I'm walking my best friend. And so it is something that I do every day because I need that for myself. And it's a good way for me to get away from sitting in front of a computer and getting angrier because I have writer's block. That's awesome. Uh, What kind of music do you like? Oh man, I like everything. I like everything. Right now, I'm having an absolute love affair with Woodkid, with a band called Smith & Thel. I've been listening to Novo Amor, The Weeknd, a bunch of stuff. I try to listen to as much as possible. I, I have an affinity for most music just because like reading, I feel it broadens my horizons to listen to as much as I can. That's very cool. All of your books have such wonderfully diverse characters. And being queer is, as we said earlier, just a part of that. Can you expound on on how you feel we're doing with queer representation in books in general? I think we're getting better, but I still think we have a long way to go. YA, young adult, is at the forefront of diversity for marginalized voices, whether it be queer, whether it be authors and characters of color, whether it be characters with disabilities, YA is leagues ahead of so-called adult fiction. Let me put it this way. When The House in the Cerulean Sea came out, I've gotten message from all over the world. It's posited as adult fiction, but it technically can be read by everyone. Mm -hmm. But when that book came out, I received countless messages. Two stuck out though, the most. One, an email was from an older woman. She, She said she was in her 70s and she wanted to let me know that she was disappointed at my inclusion of the Antichrist character in the book because of her religion, but that she, and I quote, didn't mind the homosexuals, much to my (laughs) surprise, is what she said. And you know, I took that as a win. I took that as a win because I'm broadening her horizons. She didn't mind the homosexuals. Yeah, somebody might take that as a backhanded compliment, but you know what? She didn't mind the homosexuals. Okay, I'll go for that. And then the paperback came out in December. And on the top of the paperback is a quote by amazing Titan author, extraordinary, V.E. Schwab. She is a huge fantasy author. And it was my great honor to have her blurb the book. And off the top of the book on the paperback cover, it says, it feels like a big gay blanket. 
And I love that quote. I love that quote. And so hell yes, I'm putting that right at the top. And then I get an email like in January from a reader who says that quote shouldn't be there because it's going to hurt the sales of the book because people who are closed-minded might not pick up the book when they see the word gay on the cover. And look, do I want to sell as many books as possible? Hell yeah. I'm sure my publisher wants the same, but I will never, ever sacrifice the queerness in my books just to make some people more comfortable. I don't give a crap if you're uncomfortable about the queerness or the queer characters or the overarching queer themes. If you don't like it, don't read it. It's as simple as that. And with YA, with my Extraordinary series, I've never gotten an email like that from any reader, from anyone. And it just goes to show, to me at least, that YA is just miles ahead of where adult fiction is. And if you think about it, we still see on TV and movies and all forms of media, the barrier gaze trope, the fridging lesbians. We still see a lot of biphobia and we think we're progressive in 2021 and maybe we've gotten further than we ever have before. I mean, there was just that poll release that for the first time ever, a majority of Republicans support gay marriage. You know, it's, oh, okay, it's about time. You know, where were you <laughs> 10 years ago? Where were you in 2015 when queer marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court? But diversity in YA, especially when I can speak on is the queer aspect, because I'm a, I'm a white dude, so I don't want to take away from other marginalized voices. But the queer side of things, it is getting better but we still have a hell of a lot to work to do. Do you do a lot of research when a character is a different flavor of LGBT or has a disability, a different race? Yes, because if I'm going to write outside my lane, then I need to make sure I'm doing as much research as possible, that I'm talking to people in that community. And even better, this is something that I will always champion. Sensitivity readers are the unsung heroes of publishing. Sensitivity readers are the readers who are in the community that you're writing about and have firsthand knowledge of what you should do. They're not there to tear an author down. They're there to hold an author accountable for what they're writing and making sure we're doing right by these marginalized characters that we're writing. Every author should use sensitivity readers because they're literally services of people from all communities that you can hire that will match you with a sensitivity reader who can help edit your book. I think that's so important and I'm very thankful for the sensitivity readers that have read particularly the Extraordinary series and the upcoming Under the Whispering Door because they made the books that much better. They pointed out what I got right and they pointed out where I'd made mistakes. And I'm grateful for that because regardless of how much research I do, regardless of how many people I talk to, I'm still a white dude. And with that comes a privilege and unfortunately, blinders that I may not recognize that I have that I'm still working to dismantle every day. If I'm going to be as diverse and inclusive as I possibly can, it's up to me to get that right. Because no matter what, no matter how many sensitivity readers I have, no matter how much research I do, no matter how many people in the community I talk to, in the end, the words are mine and mine alone. And that responsibility falls on me. That's awesome. I've never heard of sensitivity readers, but if you ever include a blind character, I'm happy to volunteer. <laughs> awesome. Actually, I, oh man, I don't know if, if I want to say too much about this, but I am planning on continuing my Green Creek series in a different form. 
with doing a different set of characters in a different time period. And one of the characters I'm planning is going to be blind. So I may take you up on that. Very cool. Do you know how much trouble blind people, particularly blind people who are LGBTQ, there's so much infantilization of us and so much discarding of our sexuality we're, we're not seen as sexual beings there's a lot of that and it's it would you know no see i don't know that because i can't imagine what that must be like i have never heard that before and that is infuriating <laughs> it's Just absolutely little. infuriating yeah and, and i bet that extends to the wider community too with people with disabilities i bet that yes. happens all the time and i can't imagine what that must be like it does and then the opposite side of that is how people with all disabilities as well but i've i've just experienced it from the blind side of it how mm-hmm. we're seen by the the gay community as a whole or should i say not seen here's the thing that people who aren't queer might not understand the queer community can be just as destructive as heterosexuals. They can be ableist, they can be homophobic, they can be transphobic, they can be biphobic. I obviously don't want to be any of those things, but just because we're queer does not put us on a pedestal. We still have a long way to go within our own community. And and I, I think that sometimes we forget that. Yeah. (laughs) And I appreciate your inclusion of all these different characters in your books, in The Extraordinaries in particular. You know, there's there's so many different types of people there. And speaking of The Extraordinaries, that's another book that uh, Tor has kindly made available on the National Library Service uh, Bard, we call it. The first question I'll ask you is, what inspired you to step into the YA genre to the superhero genre? I have always been a huge comic book nerd from from ever since I was a kid. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier with that otherness that I felt. Superheroes were an otherness. They had powers and that made them different than everybody else. And I, I like to pretend that, okay, maybe my ADHD wasn't a bad thing. Maybe it was kind of like my superpower, even though it didn't always feel like it. Because regardless of how I am now, if you had offered me a way to cure myself of ADHD when I was a kid, I would have taken that opportunity in a heartbeat because a kid with ADHD becomes a teenager with ADHD who becomes an adult with ADHD. It's not something that's cured. It's not something that ever goes away. It can become managed. It might get easier as you get older, but it's not something that you can cure. Neurodiversity isn't something to be cured. And I'm a huge geek when it comes to comic books, when it comes to comic book movies, comic book video games, who were given room to obsess over the things that they loved. In this case, Nick, the main character in the mm-hmm. Extraordinary series, loves superheroes so much, he writes fan fiction about them. <laughs> and I wondered what kind of a book would 15-year-old me wanted to read? The answer came really fast. It would have been about superheroes. I loved the idea of incorporating fan fiction into that Because I told you before that when I was a kid, I carried around the notebook that was essentially me writing fan fiction about the video game, the Metroid series. And I loved that side of it because it made me happy. And I know that the fanfic community, fandom in general, is a very special place. And that fan fiction is often unfairly maligned as being not literature. It is. It is. I have read some of the best writing I've ever read before in fan fiction. Me too. I have read 
stuff that has made me cheer. I've read stuff that's made me sob. I've read stuff that's made me angry. Is there bad fan fiction? Yes, but there are bad books published by major publishers. So I don't know where the literati get off maligning fan fiction. Not only is fan fiction a perfectly acceptable form of literature, it's often a safe place for queer people to go and hone their voices, where queer people who don't get to see themselves in canon write stories about queer people that they make their own canon. And I think that we don't always realize that. So I had this mishmash in my head of, of combining all of these things, fandom, queerness, fan fiction, ADHD, superheroes, all these things that are part of me or all these things that I've loved. And I just wanted to make it a happy book. Could there be stuff that happens that's not happy? Absolutely. That's part of the narrative arc. But I didn't want to make it about coming out. I wanted all these kids, Nick and Seth and Jazz and Gibby, to already be out, to be accepted by their peers, to be accepted by their families. The coming out aspect wasn't the thing I wanted to focus on. I wanted to focus on these kids who are out and proud and just living their lives, even if Nick makes everything a bit of a chaotic mess. And I adore every second I get to spend with these characters. The first book came out last summer and the next book comes out in about a month. And I just finished recently writing the third and final book, which will come out next summer. And I am bereft at the idea that this is over, that I won't write anymore in their world. But I'm, I'm very, very happy with how I was able to end their series. And I'm very aware of how special it is that I was able to tell a trilogy of books my way and the way I wanted to do it. A lot of blind folks, because we can't see them, we don't really have access to comic books. Mm -hmm. And so the movies, of course, that have been coming out are fantastic. But having books that are based in a superhero universe is so cool for us because we can pick those up on Audible. We can pick those up in Kindle and not have trouble reading them, which is so cool. You know, as a kid, my, my friends were all into comic books, but I couldn't take part in that unless they read them out loud. So the Extraordinary series is just so cool on that basis for me. I imagine for a lot of other blind people as well. See, and that's just, that goes to show right there, having blinders on, because I would not have thought about that. I would not have thought how inaccessible comic books must be to blind readers. That just bugs the crap out of me <laughs> because there are so many wonderful stories and I just, the accessibility ideas behind it just, that bugs me. Yeah. There's so much in The Extraordinaries, aside from just the characters, but coming of age, choices, secrets, carefully laid clues to a mystery, and so, so many feels, all the emotions. This is putting you terribly on the spot, but <laughs> what would you say your favorite part of The Extraordinaries is? I'm just going to speak on the first book. I think my answer is twofold. One is the relationships between the friend group, Nick, Seth, Jazz, and Gibby. You have these four characters who aren't necessarily outsiders. They just don't care what anybody else thinks about them. And they're perfectly happy with them being their friend group. They don't need to bring anybody else in. They don't need uh, the approval of anyone else. They don't necessarily need the approval of their peers. They're doing what they want to do and they don't care what anybody thinks about them. And I adore that. They are supportive of each other. I adore that they are affectionate with each other. I adore that they tell each other that they love each other, that they aren't trying to hide their emotions. The second thing that I love the most about The Extraordinaries and really overall of the series is the relationship between Nick and his father. The book itself is technically, I guess you could call it a romantic comedy between 
Nick and Seth, but it is also a love story between Nick and his dad. And Nick's dad, Aaron, is a single father. And when the book opens, they're both still in the process of grieving the loss of Nick's mother and, and Aaron's wife. And the goal in writing that relationship was always going to be that, yes, they may fight. Yes, they may butt heads. But in the end, they will always have each other's back. That Aaron Bell is going to be the father that many queer kids don't get to have. The parent that loves and supports their kid doesn't give two craps that their kid is queer and that they will protect them at all costs. Because unfortunately, a lot of queer kids don't get to have that. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to write a relationship where there was a parent who loved their kid because of and despite all their faults and celebrated their queerness rather than trying to stifle it. And I think that to me, that relationship is just as important as the one that Nick has with his friends. And it's very complicated too. It is. It is. It's not cut and dry. It's not black and white because Aaron Bell's motivations become clear. It has nothing to do necessarily with wanting to harm his son in any way, shape or form, but more, what would you do to protect your kid? What lengths would you go to in order to keep your kid safe or what you think is a version of safe? Mm. And whether or not he is doing right by it is absolutely up for debate. And it does come to a head in flash fire because Nick will find out certain truths as set up by the after credit scene in the first book. He will find out some very big truths that have been kept for him and he will need to go to the source of those truths, in this case, his father, and they will have it out. Nick will stand up for himself and that will become a very big plot point in the book. Hmm. And speaking of that after credit thing, I have to say I, I adored that because it felt so very much like the comic book movies, you know, where they have yep. the, the scene after the credits, they have a little teaser and it felt yeah. just like that. It was really See, cool. Yeah, that was, the, that was the whole point of it. And then it was my editor, Ali's idea to list it as an after credit scene because we put it after the acknowledgments that I put in the book, essentially the credits. And it comes after that. And it's funny to hear from people who didn't know that there was more because once they got the acknowledgement, they're like, okay, story's over. I don't care anymore. But those that flipped through those last couple of pages were able to find that there is more. It's a very short scene and there's one similar in Flashfire. So I would tell everybody that when you get to the end, maybe flip a couple more pages because Things are about to change. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to tease Flashfire a little bit by saying I have read it, guys. I was I was privileged enough to get a review copy, and it is phenomenal. Don't miss it. It's coming out, I believe, on July 13th, and it is definitely, definitely worth your time. Do you know if the audiobook will be published at the same time? It will be, yep. Michael Leslie is actually just finished recording as of last week. And it will be out on July 13th as well. Awesome. So you've written in in a lot of genres, fantasy, romance, YA, all kinds of different things you've you've done in your books. Do you foresee a time when you might do space opera? That is a dream of mine because my favorite movies of all time are Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. Those are my two favorite movies of all time. And I love Star Wars so, 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 so much. So I do want to write a space something and I've been toying around with an idea, but here's the thing. 
that kind of genre is so sacrosanct to me. It is, I held it in such high regard that I almost don't want to <laughs> try and ruin that for me. The same goes with horror. I love horror. Most of what I read is horror. I love horror books. I love horror movies. I love horror podcasts, horror comics. I love horror. But I don't know if I could ever write in horror because there's just so much good horror out there already. So maybe one day if, if I get a good enough idea, but I just love those two genres so, so much that I, I worry that I won't measure up to what I hope I could write. I believe in you. <laughs> I have great faith in your capability to achieve something awesome. And frankly, the sci-fi genre could use some more queer representation. I think so too. To that end, just for your listeners, there's a great queer sci-fi book that comes out September 28th called The Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. I was fortunate enough to read an early copy to blurb, and it is one of the best books I've read in a very long time. It is a weird mix of sci-fi and fantasy, and it shouldn't work, but somehow it does. And I think that everybody is going to be blown away by that book. Cool. I will definitely check that out. So... I've noticed that there's kind of a common theme between House in the Cerulean Sea and the Extraordinaries series. And that is while all the queer folks seem to be accepted and it's just a matter of course, nobody's, you know, having to come out, etc. People are are people and differences scare some people. How they overcome those scary parts and how they get people to accept their differences over time. Do you think that's how it's always going to be? I don't know. I, I wish it wouldn't. But for all the good I have hope for, I, I do also have to be realistic. We're never going to get to a place where everyone is accepted because there's always going to be at least one person who, who lives to fear monger, who lives to spread hate. And while those people are, hopefully, I wish this desperately, I, those people of minority they're still loud. They still shout because like it says in the book, they're desperate to be heard. And there are times that I feel that it shouldn't be up to the marginalized communities to teach these people. You hate us. Why should I have to be the person to change your mind? You don't like me because I exist. You don't like my queerness. You don't like my neurodiversity. Why should I have to be the one to put in the work? But then I also think, well, if not me, then who? If not us, then who's going to do it? And I go back and forth on whether or not it's our responsibility to change people's minds. And I then remember that I'm not alone. I think I remember that I, I come from a community, a very, very strong community who has been through the ringer, who has had crap flung at them for a very long time. And we owe it to those who came before us. And I'm speaking specifically about queer people. We owe it to those who came before us who have allowed us to get where we are today. And if we have to follow in their footsteps and, and fight for what we believe in and fight for our rights, then I will be the, on the front line of that. But it would be just so much easier if everybody was like, no, okay, you're right. <laughs> Everybody's fine. <laughs> but that's, that's not realistic. Life isn't fiction. Life can't be tied up in a neat, tiny little bow at a happy ending, no matter how much we wish it so. And yeah. I tend to be realistic about that, but I don't allow myself to devolve into cynicism. Not anymore. I used to be a very cynical person, but 
I just don't want to be that person anymore. I want to have hope. I want to experience joy. I want to believe that we can be better than we are. It may take time, but I know we can get there. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I heard something about the idea of the large community or the strong community and thinking of it as though we were a choir that was trying to sustain a very long note. And the way that a choir achieves that is through staggered breathing. So mm -hmm. you take a minute, you breathe while the person next to you carries on the note, and then you fill in for them while they breathe. So, yeah, I mean, as a blind person, as a gay person, having to constantly educate people, it gets very tiring. But when we need a break, there are other people in the community that can take up the slack while we have a break, and then we can go back into it. That is the absolute best way I've ever heard that put, <laughs> the staggered breathing. That is delightful. And that is absolutely true. It has been an absolute pleasure interviewing you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us during Pride Month, especially. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with people? I do. Be kind to each other. And something that I think is so, so important that I always try to talk about is mental health. Take care of your mental health. I went through and I'm still in the process of recovering. A couple of weeks ago, I had a, a bit of a mental break and it was hard, but I have the tools in place because of, of my history with depression and anxiety and having the ADHD on top of that. I had tools in place to know resources, people I could call, my friends, my family, my doctor, therapist, all of these people who are there. So even if your mental health is doing better and you're okay, reach out to those around you because depression robs people of their voices. And it, there may be somebody out there who's too scared to reach out. So check in with your people, make sure that they're okay and just take care of your health and take your medicine. <laughs> if you are prescribed any kind of SSRI or anything like that to help manage your depression, make sure you take the medicine. That's what it's there for. That's a good message. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. And everybody make sure to check out Flashfire coming out on July 13th and Under the Whispering Door coming out September 21st. Wow, that was so much fun. And guess what, guys? I have Byron Lee here. What did you think of the interview? Oh, man, that was so freaking good. You, you guys did a great job, and I have no idea how you weren't all starstruck and stammering through that whole thing. Good job, man. What's your favorite TJ Klune book? Oof, that's a really hard question for me to answer because I love T.J. Klune and there's so many good books by him and I just don't know if I can... It's not fair for me to have to come up with one book that I love by T.J. Klune. So I'm not going to. I'm going to come up with a couple and uh, hopefully you guys will check these books out. There's a couple that are free on Bard. The first one is called The Extraordinaries and that one is called DB101. 834. Again, that's DB101834. And it's about this guy named Nick, who is a fan fiction writer. And that's such a cool part of the story, because a lot of us hone our skills in romance writing with an LGBTQ you know, twist on it uh, by writing fan fiction. And so he is in total love with this superhero and writes all this fan fiction about him. And they eventually meet up and things happen. There's chemistry and such a good book and so much humor. 
the next one is the House on the Cerulean Sea, and that one is DB989. Five one. That again is DB nine eight nine five one, and it's about this guy named Linus, <laughs> and he is a bureaucrat working for the Department of Charge of Magical Youth, and he spends his days in this sort of soul crushing job trying to check on the well being of children who are in government sanctioned orphanages, you know, because they fear these children that have these magical powers. And so he has to go and check on them and make sure that they are being properly cared for and that nothing crazy is going to happen. And he unexpectedly stumbles upon this assignment that he's given on a remote island orphanage where six dangerous children reside. And he falls in love with the guy that is running that orphanage. And uh, it's such a sweet story because he's such a mild-mannered guy and he's just sort of living his life to the best of his abilities. And then just this magical spark enters his life and he starts to see the wonder in the world. And it's just, oh, so good. You guys are in for a treat because we're going to hear a house on the Cerulean Sea read by Daniel Henning. The master looked to speak again until Linus arched an eyebrow. She sighed as she nodded, taking a step back from Daisy. After scribbling a final note, Linus capped his pen and set it and the pad of paper back in his briefcase. He stood from his chair and crouched down before Daisy, knees groaning in protest. Daisy gnawed on her bottom lip, eyes wide. Daisy, do you have control over it? She nodded slowly. I think so. I haven't heard anyone since I was brought here. Her mouth twisted down. Not until Marcus. I don't like hurting people. He could almost believe that. No one said you did. But sometimes we can't always control the gifts we're given. And it's not necessarily the fault of those with said gifts. That didn't seem to make her feel better. Then whose fault is it? Linus blinked. Well, I suppose there are all sorts of factors. Modern research suggests extreme emotional states can trigger instances such as yours, sadness, anger, even happiness. Perhaps you were so happy you accidentally threw a chair at your friend Marcus? It was the reason he'd been sent here in the first place. Marcus had been seen in hospital in order to have his tail looked after. It'd been bent at an odd angle, and the hospital had reported it directly to the department in charge of magical youth, as they were required to do. The report triggered an investigation, which was why Linus had been assigned to this particular orphanage. Yes, Daisy said. That's exactly it. Marcus made me so happy when he stole my colored pencils that I accidentally threw a chair at him. I see, Linus said. Did you apologize? She looked down at her blocks again, shuffling her feet. Yes, and he said he wasn't mad. He even sharpened my pencils for me before he gave them back. He's better at it than I am. What a thoughtful thing to do, Linus said. He thought about reaching out and patting her on the shoulder, but it wasn't proper. And I know you didn't mean him any harm, not really. Perhaps in the future... We will stop and think before we let our emotions get the better of us. How does that sound? She nodded furiously. Oh, yes, 
I promise to stop and think before I throw any more chairs with nothing but the power of my mind. Linus sighed. I don't think that's quite what I... A bell rang from somewhere deep in the old house. Biscuits! Daisy breathed before running toward the door. Only one, the master called after her. You don't want to spoil your supper. I won't, Daisy shouted back before slamming the door behind her. Linus could hear the little pitter-patter of her footsteps as she raced down the hall toward the kitchen. She will, the master muttered, slumping down in her chair behind her desk. She always does. I believe she's earned it, Linus said. She rubbed a hand over her face before eyeing him warily. Well, that's it then. You've interviewed all the children. You've inspected the house. You've seen that Marcus is doing well. And while there was the incident with the chair, Daisy obviously means no harm. He believed she was right. Marcus had seemed more interested in having Linus sign his tailcast rather than getting Daisy into any trouble. Linus had balked, telling him it wasn't his place. Marcus was disappointed, but bounced back almost immediately. Linus marveled, as he sometimes did, how resilient they all were in the face of everything. Quite. I don't suppose you'll tell me what you're going to write in your report. Linus bristled. Absolutely not. You will be provided with a copy once I've filed it, as you know. The contents will be made clear to you then, and not a moment before. The very first book that I ever read by T.J. Klune was recommended to me by Chris, and it's part of a series called The Tales from Verania, and book one is called The Lightning Struck Heart. And it's about this guy named Sam, who's a magician, and he is in utter love with this knight, but I don't think he believes that he is knight material. Little does he know, uh, Mr. Knighty McKnightface just loves him. And uh, there's all this like crazy chemistry. And there are just moments in the series where I'm like, kiss, kiss, kiss. <laughs> it, it drives me absolutely crazy. The whole book is narrated by Michael Leslie, and he is a phenomenal voiceover artist. And one of my favorite characters from that series is Gary the Gay Unicorn. And Gary is sassy, and he takes no prisoners. And if your shoes clash with your outfit, he will be the first to tell you. And I love him. He is absolutely great. So I would highly recommend reading the Tales from Verania series. There's also a box set of sort of short fairy tale parodies called Fairy Tales from Verania. And they, they sort of satire classic fairy tales, but put a gay spin on it. And it's so good. So I'd highly recommend that one as well. But, but read the Tales from Verania series first so that there's more context. Well, I could just go on forever and ever and ever and ever about how great TJ Klune is, but we're running out of time. If you would like to send us an email and let us know what your favorite TJ Klune books are or what your favorite LGBTQ plus books are, please do so. Our email address is membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org. Looking forward to hearing from you guys, and I'm going to hand it back over to Chris. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. I hope you guys had a fun time with us, and I hope you'll join us next week on Pride Connection. Happy Pride! You have been listening to Pride Connection. 
sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. Thank you.